Good day, good day, Doc Spacers. You're listening to the Doc Space Startup School Podcast. Starting a medical practice in 2019 may seem like a dinosaur of an idea, but with the advancements of technology and the remote flexibility of care management, it's never been easier. Hi, I'm Dr. Mario Amaro. I'm a United States Navy veteran, a medical physician, and a health tech founder on a new mission to help clinicians rediscover their autonomy and bring back private medical practice. DocSpace Startup School is a virtual course that's built and designed to help clinicians navigate the medical practice formation process. In this podcast, we will interview some of the industry's leading experts in health law, design, marketing, finance, and tons of other exciting topics to help you better prepare to start and manage a successful medical practice. Welcome to the DocSpace crew. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome back our guest today, Megan Neal. She is the founder and CEO of Health Law Texas, which is a virtual law firm based out of Houston, Texas. Megan is an expert law attorney, helping her clients maintain HIPAA compliance to protect them from receiving and paying fines due to HIPAA data breaches. Today at DocSpace Startup School, she will help us review how to create patient intake forms, the importance of business associate agreements, and HIPAA compliance rules and regulations. I'm Megan Neal. Um, I have a law firm called Neal Law PLLC, and I'm based in Houston. I'm licensed in Texas, and I focus primarily on healthcare providers. I do business structuring, um, compliance, and that sort of thing for healthcare providers. Awesome. So the topics, you know, that we see a lot, especially, you know, in the news, we've seen the, the association between Google and associated on the data, you know, it was the questions regarding the BA agreements. A lot of people don't understand what exactly is a BA and how, how, do it, how it applies between different parties in that partnership. Can you just okay. talk a bit about so, Yeah, so BAA, Business Associate Agreement, it's required whenever you are exchanging data to someone who is not providing treatment. Very briefly with HIPAA, there's exceptions to when you can disclose information under treatment, payment, and operations. So if you have um, someone in-house that's doing operations, billing, whatever it is, you can give them all kinds of patient data. It doesn't matter. Um, Whenever you have someone, let's say an outside biller or someone doing revenue cycle management for you, you need to have a business associate agreement because they're not providing treatment. And they are providing something where they have a right to get information disclosed to them pursuant to this contract. But the Office of Civil Rights and HHS require that you have reasonable assurances that they are going to protect that data um, to the full extent that is required by HIPAA. So that's the purpose of the business associate agreement is to make sure that you have something in place where that vendor, that individual, whatever that relationship is, that they are going to protect the data. Yeah, so uh, talk a little bit about what happens, you know, if there was a breach or what happens, you know, if, you know, one person didn't kind of, you know, I guess the, what I'm trying to get at is didn't honor their responsibilities. So I have a couple of stories from that. Um, the very first HIPAA breach that I handled was actually a breach by a business associate. So I was working in-house at a surgical center, 
and um, their business associate breached data to an outside party. And a complaint was filed. The Office of Civil Rights sent a letter. The amount of data, we're talking about under 10 people. It wasn't a big deal. So um, the problem is, is that the way that the BAA was written, the covered entity, meaning my client that I was working for, had to, they were responsible for all the costs and any potential fines, even though there weren't, they weren't the ones that breached any information. So the business associate did. Recently, HHS published some guidance on that and said, you can put it in your business associate agreement that the breaching party has to um, cover the costs. I've been putting it in all of my BAAs because I want to protect the, the providers, the covered entities. It's not their fault if like, let's say their biller or somebody has a, a laptop that's stolen or hacked or something like that. Why should my client have to bear the cost of all of that and have to um, deal with the Office of Civil Rights? It can get really expensive. So I have another one right now where covered entity and business associate had a relationship that on paper was that the business associate would only access certain information except the problem is, is that he was accessing more information. So that's another issue where, you know, not only does the business associate have to make sure that they're doing what's in that document, but the covered entity has to make sure that they are, um, I guess, making sure that the business associate isn't overreaching or doing anything that's a violation of HIPAA. So in that instance, actually, it's, it's still ongoing. Um, I've got three currently that are ongoing, but um, in that instance, the Office of Civil Rights wants to see the business associate agreement. They want to see the underlying contract. Um, they want to know the full extent of the relationship, they want to know what kind of data was breached, you know, was it used for any, you know, bad purpose or sold or anything like that. We don't think it was, but it's still a breach. So when that happens, you know, my client, the provider, is the one who has to bear all of this cost. It can get really expensive. I typically recommend to my clients that they have some sort of uh, endorsement on their malpractice policy that covers this. Malpractice policies are paying for HIPAA breaches for a couple of my providers. So um, it gets very expensive. Um, so definitely do that. But you know, one of the things whenever they do breach, I've got another client who had a breach and I had to tell them, you need a new vendor, period. You have to get a new vendor. You cannot keep the same vendor because they didn't do their job. And that's a pain in the butt, especially whenever you have like a new biller or somebody that has, um, like, let's say it's a lab or something that you have an ongoing relationship with and you're sending samples to them or whatever it may be, now you have to get a new vendor because you don't want to deal with another breach. But in the meantime, what do you do to before you get a new one and negotiate that contract and you still need this service? It can be a nightmare. Yeah, you know, 
when, I, when I'm hearing your stories, it, it makes me think about a lot of the, you know, the, the different vendors that a lot of doctors deal with. You know, you have your tech vendors, you have like you just talked your service vendors, you know, you have all of those different types of people that you have to work with. And the thing is, who offers the BAA? Who is the one who establishes it? Are you signing the vendor's BAA? Are you, are you, do you have an umbrella BAA that covers all these types of entities that you're working with? What, what is the recommendation there? So a lot of them require that you sign the one that they provide. So like eClinical Works, um, a lot of those billing software companies, Access is one that a lot of home health providers use. Um, Google for Google Drive um, and other cloud-based software that may be used, uh, they require that you sign theirs, that they don't negotiate. They don't have any option to change it or further protect, protect yourself. Um, some vendors like lab vendors say, well, we're providing treatment, so we're not going to do a BAA. And that's one of those gray area things. Like, are they really providing treatment if they're doing testing? I say that they're not providing treatment. They're just doing testing. We should have a BAA. Um, because let's say LabCorp or Quest or one of those big people has a huge data breach. Every single person that they're, all their covered entities, all their clients, all their, all these providers, and if having to do a breach, that doesn't seem right. But they say that they're providing treatment. So they are a covered entity, which means that they would be the ones bearing the cost of it. Kind of okay with that. But yeah, it's really difficult. It depends on who it is, how savvy they are, how many healthcare clients they have, um, how big they are, you know, if they have a way to sign up online. Because usually if you're signing up online, then it's just, it's one of those click through things like here's our BAA, here's what we have, you know, click, yes, I agree. Yes, this is fine, you know, move on. So um, when it comes to other vendors, if you have the option, go ahead and get one that is one that you create or that your attorney creates or that, you know, somebody's creating on your behalf because of that new HHS, HHS guidance that came out, I think it was in May, saying you can protect yourself additionally and they can bear the cost of it. Is there any type of auditing type platforms or anything that you can do to manage this from that you know of, you know, to be able to just check to see if anyone's been breached, you know, because mm. they don't notify. So usually in a BAA, there's a notification requirement. And if the notification doesn't occur within, you know, usually it's like five or 10 days, then um, they can terminate the contract. So, you know, that's one tiny little safety net, right? But auditing software, um, it really just depends on how big the provider is and what they have going on. So large medical companies, um, hospital systems, stuff like that, like Texas Children's, for example, they have routine IT um, auditing that occurs to say like, hey, wait a second, this person has never ever before looked at a patient file in six years and all of a sudden they're looking at a patient file. What's going on? Like that's not in the scope of what they're supposed to do. So they have things that set off red flags. 
the software does exist, but is it cost prohibitive? Probably for most small providers. Um, the thing though is to make sure that everything that you have in-house is locked up as much as, you, as possible whether that be physically in a filing cabinet or, you know, fingerprint passwords on all the computers, terminate everybody, not just terminate the access, but call the vendor to make sure that they're terminated in their side of the system. I have had a couple of doctors say, hey, we, we terminated and deleted them on our side, but they still access the system three months later. So, um, you know, that's, unfortunately, I haven't figured out the way other than very expensive software. Yeah, yeah I, I, can, I can see where that will become a, you know, a big problem, especially with the, like you said, termination, um, not removing access in an appropriate amount of time where there could be a potential breach. You know, if there was a disgruntled employee or something, or, yeah, that, that could be bad for the, for the practice. Uh, especially for patient data, you know, you want to protect it as much as possible, you know, and ensure that you're doing everything to protect it. You know, um, something that I, I, I wanted to kind of moving on beyond BAAs, um, you know, I've seen a lot of doctors when it comes to intake forms or at least um, setting up new patients through like web portals or, you know, online. I, there's a lot of doctors who are using software that's not meant for that, you know, and they're using companies that do not offer BAAs. For example, Typeform. Have you heard of Typeform before? I have, but not in the context of medical practices. Yeah, there are a lot of doctors who are trying to be, you know, tech savvy. They're using these uh, template forms, you know, the form builders to onboard their patients and collect PII, PII you know, it's not necessarily collecting, you know, a patient data right where it's HIPAA but it's still PII it does it has a layer of protection to be you know set up according to compliance so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on when people use those type of uh, software so you made me cringe pretty hard whenever you said that, that was happening um so a couple of things you know HIPAA says protected health information and you just mentioned PII um, that actually is health information because it is that they have seen a doctor and the mere fact that someone has seen a doctor is protected under HIPAA. So for anyone who maybe that was unclear to, now it's clear. The other thing is it's fine to have patients sign up online and to enter their information online. It's fine for them to say, yes, I want to receive text messages about my health information or have this portal or you can send me email reminders or whatever. That is fine. It's patient driven. They're the ones requesting that disclosure to them in that form. Absolutely, you can do that. You absolutely should not do it through a service that one does not have encryption. Um, the onus is on the provider to have encrypted software. Whether or not you know you're supposed to have it encrypted, you're supposed to have it encrypted. Without that encryption, the Office of Civil Rights will get pretty upset during a breach. I've seen it happen. That was a nightmare. And that was very expensive. I think my fees went to over 100000 trying to not have them pay a fine because 
their stuff was not encrypted. And that was, that was the ugliest HIPAA breach I've ever dealt with. So encrypt everything, encrypt everything. The second thing is, is that, you know, these forms are great, but if you're putting them on your website and they're linking somewhere else, that's not great. That's terrible. That's going to be a breach. There are other ways to do it that are inexpensive or free um, within probably what you already have set up. I mentioned Google Drive earlier, that um, Office 365, OneDrive. There's uh, HIPAA compliant options in most of the major software systems. And you can have things linked to those and then go to your email or whatever else. So um, when it comes to filling out forms online, make sure that you have uh, security on your website and make sure that those forms are not linking to somewhere else. Um, I'm not an IT specialist. I have a friend who is, and usually I'm like, just talk to that guy over there because he's the one who sets it up and says, okay, now you can use this and that's fine. But uh, almost every team, single IT person in the United States now knows about HIPAA and they know how to be HIPAA compliant. And usually it's, it's really inexpensive. I would much rather somebody say, oh, you know, it's $500 or whatever it is to get this set up. And I say, yeah, cool. $500. I mean, that can be a lot, especially if you're starting up and you're trying to make payroll and make sure that you have all the supplies you need. But, you know, whenever you talk about if you have a HIPAA breach, that $500 is nothing. It's going to be easily 10 times that for the most minimal breach. So um, pay the 500 bucks, basically. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, if you don't have a BAA and you're collecting patient information, even if it's just name, date, date of birth, that, that's, that's HIPAA, you know? Because <laughs> the manner that you're collecting it, it's assuming some type of treatment, right? It's gonna be provided. And so that means don't use it. There's no BAA and you're collecting data, don't use it, you know, because again, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I mean that, that seems like common knowledge to most people, but honestly, um, I have seen a lot of doctors that are starting to do that to save costs. Right. And it's convenient for patients. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Like how many times I'm trying to think how many times in the last year have I made an appointment with a doctor and they've said, go online and fill out this information for your kid or fill this information out for yourself or, you know, you go to one and then you need to see a specialist, but they're sort of related and they say, here's a packet of paper, fill out these 30 pages um, and come back with it. And then I always forget the pages and, you know, it's like if it's online, it's, it's super simple. You can do it from home. You don't have to worry about bringing it back. It's, it's wonderful. But, you know, like you said, if there's no BAA, then it's no good and you need to have it encrypted. That's, that's a big problem. And, you know, a lot of doctors, I don't want to say they're, it's trying to cut costs. Everybody's trying to cut costs. But a lot of doctors um, and other providers want to do what's best for their patients, do what's cost efficient for everybody, and, you know, provide the best patient care. But, you know, what I've seen is, since HIPAA 
compliance dates were, I guess, about 15 years ago. Most of the doctors in this country have been licensed more than 15 years. And the first five, 10 years that it was in effect, nobody really knew where the boundaries were. Nobody knew what the limits were. Congress didn't know where the limits were. They had to do a whole new, we call it the omnibus rule, um, an entire new set of guidance and, and statutes for HIPAA, which is still less than 10 years old. So, you know, it can get really confusing. And then, especially whenever we talk about the technical safeguards that, that are required. No, no, I, and I agree. It's, it's extremely confusing. You know, that's why they, some people do make those mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're like, well, I didn't ask them their diagnosis. I didn't ask them anything relating to their, you know, their medical history, so it must be safe. It's, it's on your website. And based off your, on your website, the assumption is, it's right. And so, uh, of course, as not being a lawyer, you know, I mean, obviously they're going to try to pick and, you know, pick at it as much as possible, you know. And so, uh, you know, another thing that I've seen other people do, and again, it's just based off of my, you know, my research, you know, trying to help doctors start their practices and start to notice different things that they do. And um, one of the things that I've seen is the intake forms, the, the, the patient forms that they, they, they create, they're kind of just copy pasting, putting their own logo on top of form after form after form that someone else built maybe five, 10 years ago. Right. You know, and, and then carbon copying it over and over and over. And I'm just screaming in my head, like, why are you doing this? You know? And so can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, like it's like that movie Multiplicity where you make copy of copy of copy, it's just not as good. Um, so yeah, I've seen some pretty rough patient intake forms lately, and they're not really sufficient. They say like, you know, what's your name, your address, your insurance, and then you know, coinsurance is on the next page or something. Um, it's and it says, do you want to receive? phone calls or something and then they like handwrite do you want to receive text messages and they copy it so yeah that gets like i said it gets a little ugly the most important thing is to think about what do you need from the patient for your intake form you need their insurance information you need their demographic information you need probably a next of kin or other emergency contact but you also need to know is it okay to release um PHI to that next of kin, uh, like, hey, you know, your spouse has had an event and they're going to be at the hospital. Is that, you know, that's the minimum necessary to make sure that the patient's taken care of um, and that their family is aware. But can you say like, hey, look, she had a seizure and she's going to be sent to the hospital. You know, those are the kinds of things, depending on the practice area, that what what is it what is your goal with that patient intake form and then of course you know making sure that you have sufficient information to be able to contact them and you know do they want i i usually recommend do you want to be contacted by text email whatever and they do a checkbox to where they check by the one that says text and then they write in what phone number they check by the one that says email write in what phone number and if they check no boxes then you don't send it out in any way other than, you know, your normal stuff. So um, like, and then you say like, normally we will send a postcard for your annual exam or whatever it may be. 
you know, if you don't want us to do that, check here. Um, so the other thing is that, you know, and this is probably the most important thing in terms of the business side, what are the patient's responsibilities in terms of showing up, showing up on time, um, paying, uh, paying at a reasonable time, and, you know, you need to have something on that intake form that says, like, I understand if I miss an appointment, it's going to be a $30 fee and my insurance is not going to pay for that. Um, I understand that, you know, if I don't cancel an appointment within 24 hours, that my insurance isn't going to cover that and I still owe this $30 fee. Whatever it is that you want, um, those are the types of things that you need to have on your intake forms. Uh, there's one doctor that my daughter goes to and they require um, a credit card. And if you don't show up, they charge a card. Just how it is. And but you sign a form that says, I know that if I don't show up, I'm gonna get charged. I think it's like 50 bucks or something. Um on credit card ending and and then you put in the last four of whatever, you know, the card you're giving. So those are the types of things um on the intake form itself. And then, of course, if you have a patient rights and responsibilities form or something like that, I would have the patient sign every single page. Yeah, no, and, and that's the beauty behind patient portals, you know, is that a lot of this stuff can be automated. It could be already there for them to, to, to access, review, sign, you know, and then you can also be, you're able to send off those notifications. Do you want to text, you know? Yep. Um, email how do you want to be notified for your appointments whether you book it it's canceled all these different things it's all automated so it makes okay. sense be there you know um but you you mentioned something earlier regarding the you know payments like for the no-shows those are those are you know for the no-show appointments that you have some type of agreement $25 missed appointment something like right. that right um we're seeing a lot of doctors that are moving to the subscription model so they're not yeah. Health insurance, but they're accepting cash. So you know, in medicine, it's, it's kind of hard to fire a patient, right? You have to have some type of referral to another person, right? Mm -hmm. Adequate level of care. And so, what happens if a patient doesn't pay a doctor their re their recurring you know bill, right? So can you fire that patient for non payment? You know, like. It, so I would put that in the terms of the original agreement. You know, if we're talking about a subscription model, it's set, you know, where you're paying monthly or however that model is arranged, you know, if you don't pay, it, it's, let's say it's 60 days. If you don't pay for 60 days, um, we will terminate this agreement and we will no longer provide you care. Um, and or if you miss, you know, do over 45 days twice in a year or three times in two years, we're going to terminate this. You know, who wants to hound their patients to pay them money? Because that's then you have that labor cost. Even if you have automated reminders, you know, you're going to have to use an actual human to call them on the phone and say, like, dude, where's my money? Um, and in the meantime, if they're not paying for the service, 
you know, probably you're still going to have to provide the service and spend the time to do it, you know, and then we have a whole other issue with that. So, um, yeah, it, that would be something that I would put in a contract. That's whatever, whatever the provider thinks is the most reasonable thing. You know, I mean, we all forget. I wouldn't say like the first, if you don't pay within three days, you're done. Um, you know, I, but yeah, it's got to be reasonable. And it's got to be reasonable for most parties. Yeah, no, and, and I think this uh, further kind of explains why it's important for you to have more of a custom documentation for your for your practice, you know? And yes, there may be some type of, you know, templates that you can use and kind of build off of. Uh, but again, each individual practice is going to be specific for that individual, right? Yep. And for that they're going to be accepting uh, because you may accept kids and the form may have been only for adults, right? So it's like a lot of these things do matter and um, you have to be able to modify and build it according to your medical license, your medical specialty, whatever, you know, all of this, right? right. You know, I, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I can see those being huge red flags, you know, just kind of carbon copying something from someone else that you have no idea who they are. You know, it's kind right. of well, you know, you asked me before uh, the other day about legal zoom was like, it's great for some people, uh, but it, it's not a one size fits all. And these car, you know, these copies of other things, it's not a one size fits all, you know, now, uh, I'm trying to think like, a HIPAA privacy notice to patients that you find online. Eh, it might be a one size fits 80%, right? <laughs> um, Texas has additional requirements. Um, you know, other states have additional requirements like California needs everything to be in 14 point font or something like that. Um, there's font size requirements. So, you know, is it going to fit all? No, but you should at least review it instead of saying like, Oh, well, Dr. You know, Jones in Kansas is using this. So I think it's going to be fine for my practice in Louisiana. Um, yeah. Maybe not. But, you know, review it. It's, it's always a good starting point. To have a template is always a very good starting place. Um, even, you know, in my practice, if there's something that, like, you know, I need to create, it's sort of like this agreement, sort of like this agreement. I will take it and look at it and alter it generally pretty heavily to make it my own to do it, but I have a template in place, you know, to where I, can, I have a starting point and, you know, it, it's better than drafting it from scratch because the hardest part about drafting something from scratch, whether I'm the one doing it, whether providers doing it for their own um, practice, like a, a patient release form or something like that is thinking of all the right things to say. Yeah. So it's, it's really tough. Yeah, and, and then I guess I can see the a, a case where you didn't think of everything. So that one thing you didn't think of, you missed, and then that's a huge gap, you know. For oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> like uh, I saw a contract that had um, that somebody was buying into a company, and somebody else was selling their stuff, and there was no indemnification clause. And it was like, what do you? what do you mean there was no indemnification? So the seller actually got sued um, and had to pay because 
that he was not indemnified. There was no protection for him when he sold his interest in the company. And that's, that's a huge, huge no-no uh, whenever you're selling stuff like that. So yeah, it happens. I mean, it happens all the time where somebody leaves out a huge thing and you either have to go back and fix it and hope somebody agrees or, you know, you fix it as soon as possible and hope that your old documents don't come back to bite you in the butt. Yeah, no, and, and there's definitely things that you have to look at and you probably wouldn't know it unless you did either a personal audit or you had an attorney or somebody to look at it. You know, um, someone made a comment uh, on this, uh, one of these forums that I, I kind of participate in every now and then. And they mentioned that, you know, it's best to use a CPA to help form your business entity and instead of a lawyer, you know? So I would like to hear some information just so we can have some real time discussion, you know, on, on, on that, that, that comment. So I love CPAs. Um, I work with them a lot. I have also fixed some things that they have done incorrectly. So CPAs have, they're looking at the tax issues, right? So if you need someone to advise you on taxes, it is definitely not me. It is a CPA or a tax attorney or, you know, somebody with very specialized tax knowledge. I know enough about taxes to say, well, this is kind of how this is going to work, but you should talk to your CPA. Um, usually whenever I'm forming an entity, I will get a phone call from a provider that'll say, well, I talked to my CPA and they said I need an LLC. And I'm like, cool. So we'll do a PLLC. And they're like, no, 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 an LLC. And I'm like, yeah, you can't do that because you're a provider. So, and I actually had a conversation with a CPA one time and had to explain to her why these two providers could not work together under the same company. Um, it was a PLLC, but they're licensed by two different boards in the state of Texas. And they, their boards say like, you can't work together. So whenever I told the CPA that she's like, well, that's stupid. And I was like, yeah, kind of. Um, I don't disagree, but we just can't do it the way that you had originally told the clients. So, um, you know, whenever it comes to taxes, CPAs are wonderful. I often tell my clients, go talk to a CPA because I don't know their personal taxes. And, you know, if their personal situation is going to alter the way that I create the entity, then that's something that's valuable information. I work with their CPAs all the time and say, okay, you know, from a tax perspective, is here's the options that are available to them. Is this one better or is this one better? And they say, well, this one. And I'm like, okay, cool, we can do that. Um, I Anyone can form an entity, in at least in the state of Texas. It doesn't really matter. Um, like you could do it for your friend or whatever. But, uh, and I don't recommend that, but, um, you know, when it comes to a CPA only being the one to do it, I would at least, particularly in healthcare, and this is very a very specific comment to healthcare, make sure you are talking to someone who knows the healthcare regulations. Yeah, no, no that's very good advice because, you know, again, there is, you know, every business does vary. And healthcare is really specific, 
you know, because there are a lot of compliance associated with that. And like you mentioned, boards that kind of maintain their own doctrine that says no and yes to certain things, right? And so you can't mesh the two. And a lot of people would assume healthcare provider, healthcare provider, it works, you know? And the thing is, no, not all the time, you know? And so you need to be able to understand that healthcare law. So it's really good, or even just the regulations of we can plug into what you know right and yeah I, I i think this has been a really good topic you know because the hipaa baa all these different things are super confusing and you know you, you provided a good overview to help them understand what exactly do i need why do i need it and, and i think this is going to be really useful but uh okay, Megan, thank you very much again uh for, for joining us and, and helping us under you know learn these different you know, interesting kind of nuanced topics. I really yeah, agree. And um, again, can you kind of just let, you know, new attendees kind of know exactly how to find you if they need to? Yeah. So um, my website is www.healthlawtx.com. So Health Law Tax is what it is. And my name is Megan Neal. That's uh, last name is N-E-E-L. Um, and my email address is Megan at healthlawtx.com. So I also have a Facebook page um, for my law firm, which is Neil Law PLLC. Thank you for listening to the DocSpace Startup School podcast. Please check us out at startupschool.mydocspace.com for more video lectures and product demos. And don't forget to join the DocSpace Startup School community Slack channel to engage with other clinicians going through their journey of starting a medical practice.